You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Both my guests on today's show have an artistic reach that not only goes way beyond the borders of Missouri, but also stretches far across the ocean. Marcus Jarrell Ruff has a voice which you do not forget. The bass baritone singer has sung in Vienna, Prague, St. Petersburg and across the United States. Later in the show, he'll be joining me in the studio to talk about his extraordinary voice and the people he thinks of as his crown jewels. My first guest is also familiar with stages the world over. She is taught and directed theatre in Greece, Russia, Slovakia, Sweden and the Czech Republic. Her directing credits are upwards of 170 productions. She is the author of a book about integrating the arts into education, has won multiple awards for both teaching and directing, was the recipient of the Likachev Yeltsin Cultural Fellowship at the St. Petersburg Performing Arts Academy in Russia, is invested into the College of Fellows of the American Theatre, is Professor Emerita at American University in Washington, D.C., and is now starting her sixth season as Dean of the School of Creative and Performing Arts at Stevens College. Dr. Gail humphreys Madarujian, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Hearing that biography <laughs> makes me chuckle. I think of hard work, diligence, endless hours of rehearsal and instruction, and it sounds so grand. Well, wonderful. Thank you. It is. I have so many talented high achievers on this show. And I think about how amazing it is that we are in this small town in the middle of the country, yet the breadth and the depth of the talent of the people here is extraordinary. Do you miss D.C. at all? I go back and forth. Do I miss it? Yes and no. I love it here. I love my charge at Stevens College to cultivate women, artists, citizen leaders of tomorrow. And to live in the Midwest is extraordinary. It is uh, an amazing part of the country. Having lived in major capitals all over the world, I didn't expect this small town to have such an incredible breadth of artistic talent across all the arts. It's phenomenal. It is a heartland in so many ways. And for an artist, the heart, the soul matters. So I'm wondering whether your friends thought you were nuts to move to this small town, your friends in D.C., when you first announced, I'm going to go to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. Yes, unequivocally. (laughs) (laughs) One of our major donors at my former institution, American University, said, Missouri, is that in the United States? And I said, yes, right smack in the middle. The interesting thing is, during my time at Stevens, I've been able to parlay many of my professional contacts to come as guest artists, designers, directors, choreographers, teachers. And as soon as they come to Columbia, they go, wow, what an amazing college community. And then they come to Stevens and they say, I understand why you're compelled 
to be here. It's quality. It's training the artist of the future. And what was it? What was that single thing that compelled you to come here? It wasn't single. It was probably trifold. It was the future of women in the arts. That matters significantly to me. As a young female director, I worked heartily to develop my reputation, to expand my repertoire, and to make certain my work could be acknowledged for what it was, not compared to male, female, just about the quality of the work. The second thing was the caliber of Stevens College and the leadership there. I was compelled by Dr. Diane Lynch. I have to share that. It was grand to find a president of a women's college who believed in everything she did about the power of the arts and women. And then the the third thing, I suppose, is my personal nature. I'm a pioneer. I have always been. (laughs) I should have the tattoo that several of my friends have that is Diva Warrior. I don't have it yet. There are many great tattoo parlors in Colombia, so (laughs) don't let anything hold you back. When you think back to starting out as a female director and producer, compared to now, how more difficult was it then? Is it still incredibly difficult? Are we still on the foothills of change or have we climbed the mountain a little bit? Oh, I like the term foothills of change. I think we're there and we are climbing the mountain. We've made great progress. So many of my female colleagues from graduate school and my doctoral days are heading regional theaters right now, which you would not have heard of 20 years ago. But I hope to instill in our students the fact that the challenge is still present. It's a huge challenge still present. And we were talking before we went on air that it isn't only finding roles for female actors, but it's higher up the chain of command. You need to have female directors and female producers. And that is what causes change. And the statistics are low. They're quite low. 20 to 22 percent of the professional theaters in the United States have women at the helm. But I feel confident we are affecting change. I believe strongly in what that is and giving women a voice in the field. And it's a substantive, informed voice. Now, I I know you've said why you chose Stevens. Why do you think Stevens chose you? What are you bringing to this program, apart from years of international experience? Is it the arts and the integration into education? Is that something for Stevens? I hope it's my repertoire, but I would also say I hope it's my spark, my courage, and tenacity because I live by the standards that I set and that's challenging in every way. (laughs) For you and everybody around you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So how do you choose the season at Stevens? What are the 
defining factors or ideas that lead you to choosing certain shows? Oh, thank you for asking that. We have multiple factors. We look at the potential for women in varying roles. We look at female playwrights because we certainly want to further that outlook. Opportunities that serve students in theater and musical theater, new works, as well as a view to the past and legacy in the arts. I have had something of a journey of discovery over the past year of doing this show and going to see a lot more theatre than I did before. And I have been blown away so many times by the shows that I have seen at Stevens College over the last year. Probably the pinnacle being the absolutely incredible production of Pippin that happened at the end of the last semester. That was so amazing. I went to see it twice, but it wasn't the only show I went to see (laughs) twice at Stevens last year. How do you produce something like that in a small town? You find extraordinary women who will lead the way. I had a wonderful colleague, Carol Schulberg, who I had worked with for many, many years at the Kennedy Center, American University, and I was thrilled to have her come here and inspire our students. And we have the same thing coming up this fall with Mamma Mia. We have a new musical theater professor, Jennifer Hemphill, who is truly a role model. She did the lead role in Mamma Mia on Broadway for two years, the national tour for many years, and she's doing it here on our stage. The female director, Robin Levine, was on Broadway as the dance captain and the swing for all the female roles. It is a tour de force. Callbacks are tonight. You can come join me if you want to. (laughs) That sounds very tempting. (laughs) So now the director, Robin, is here as a visiting artist, but the girl who plays Donna, she is the new musical... Jennifer Hemphill is the new musical theater professor here. What an amazing opportunity for the students to be able to work with somebody like that. So now you have two theatres at Stevens. You have the Playhouse Theatre and you have the Warehouse Theatre. Explain the difference for people. The Mecklenburg, the Playhouse Theatre, is what we call main stage. And we do six productions a year, including musicals, dramas, comedy, new works. And the Warehouse Theatre is a unique and wonderful attribute of Stevens College. Women direct, produce, design, and perform. Faculty advise, guide, facilitate, but they really, truly learn by doing. Our mantra, and this is also something I should mention that drew me to Stevens, is the apprentice learning model. So you learn by doing and you work with guidance and facilitation of expert role models. And that includes backstage too. It isn't just up front. Oh, absolutely. We have produced exceptional stage managers. Women are particularly facile, I have to say, in terms of multitasking and handling the many demands that a stage manager has. You call the cues for the show, lighting and sound. You work side by side with the director. You keep your prompt book. You are detail and artistically oriented. 
and we're doing an outstanding job of that as well as sound design scenic design and we have a BFA in costume design looking back at those statistics you were talking about the 22% of women that are directing and producing it's down to 1% when you look at women that are electricians or lighting or you know all of those backstage things and again that's a very male dominated part of the theatre are you helping to change that at Stevens too we are we're modeling it the staff member who does lighting design and is the master electrician is a woman, Sarah Akur. We have a new shop supervisor. It used to be called shop foreman. We changed that. I tried to make it shop for woman. That seemed awkward. So we're calling it shop supervisor, Dr. Rebecca Holly. So again, we have women modeling the professional sphere for young women. The next generation. As a predominantly female college with all these wonderful female roles, when you do need to cast men, how much of a problem is that? Where do you go to to find... I mean, I've seen you cast women in male-identifying roles, which works fine, but when you do need to cast a man, is that hard to find people in Columbia? Well, within the college, oh, I guess. Oh, we go beyond. Right. We utilise local artists in many ways, and then we extend beyond and bring in male guest artists. When you see the three fathers in Mamma Mia, or the potential fathers, we never know who is the real father, two are guest artists from out of state, and one is a local actor. When you look at the three young men, two are from out of state professionals, one is a local artist. So I think we're doing the best of both, trying to offer everyone a high quality of the aesthetic experience. So, so you have chosen that the male roles are already identified. Can you tell us who the local people are or is it still a secret? It's not publicly announced. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to give you I do. the breaking <laughs> <My scoop>. news. <laughs> So let's look ahead then at the 2019-20 season um, that you have planned for the two theatre companies, starting with my absolute favourite musical, Mamma Mia, which opens on September the 20th at the Playhouse Mecklenburg Theatre. Now, I know you performed this at Okoboji Summer Theatre up in Northern Iowa as part of your summer programme. How many of that cast carry over into this production? Some. All of our women have to re-audition and earn the right to perform the role. Some of the men are coming down, some are not, because they had other commitments, one of whom has been on so many national tours. He came off of one tour, came up to Okoboji, and is going on another. It's anchored really strongly in every way. And the musical director is the much-beloved Tom Andes from Columbia. Well, I think most of your pit, your orchestra, tend to be community people, do they? Or do you have musicians within the Stevens community that you pull in for the orchestra? We offer vocal training, but we do not do instrumental training. Some piano, if there's an outstanding pianist. but um, And a few of our women do play instruments, and that's an interesting 
trend in the field where if you look at the musical once, all of the actors also played musical instruments. And there are several new tours of shows where the actors need to play instruments as well as perform, act, dance, sing, and play an instrument. So after Mamma Mia, which runs for two weekends, right? Two weekends, the weekend of the 20th, and then we close on September 28th. I probably will come and see that twice, just FYI. Good, be my (laughs) guest and bring your friends. And after Mamma Mia, you have the Great American Songbook for one weekend in October, and then Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol in early December, both of which seem a little unadventurous. Why are they on the schedule? Oh, they both are adventurous. (laughs) I will tell you why. So Great American Songbook, we have a classic collection of amazing vintage dresses. So the women will wear costumes from the period and for our students to study the music of Jerome Kern, George Gershwin and present that is extraordinary and they will embody the period with their hairstyles, their makeup, their vintage outlook. And A Christmas Carol is different for us. An alum has a theater in Arizona where we do a postgraduate theater fellowship for theater women and I saw their production of A Christmas Carol and was struck by it because it also involves puppets. So the ghost of Christmas past is a puppet and the ghost of Christmas future is a nine-foot puppet that a young woman will get inside of and manipulate and we're designing that and working on it through our costume design program. So it's Dickens with a slight twist. I feel like I've seen The Christmas Carol so many times. It's hard when you take something that's such a classic and make it new, give it its own spin. Well, I think it'll have the tip to tradition and a look at innovation. And that's exciting. It's different. It's exciting for the students to learn about puppetry. And we're bringing in the director from Arizona who designed the puppets to work with us. And incidentally, he has a Prague connection because puppetry in the Czech Republic is significant. The puppets kept the Czech language alive during the various oppression of the Czech lands. So the language was not permitted to be spoken, but the puppets utilized the language. So it has a resonance for me. My mother is Czech. Do you speak Czech? Because you were there for a while. I speak a bit. I speak a lot of Russian. I know it's strange. I learned it (laughs) as a child growing up. I can sing Russian show tunes, Russian beer drinking songs, recite the alphabet, and speak to you. Do you want to hear hello? Go for it. Strasvetya Kaktupuzhvayeta. I just said hello. How are you? I can say Manyazavut Gael. My name is Gail. And you'll probably order beers in a bar too. (laughs) (laughs) And I know some of the Czech words. Czech has similarity with the Russian language. There are some words like if I would say Dobry Den. Hello, 
good day, it's a greeting. It's the same in Czech and in Russia. Well, then after Christmas Carol, we have Pride and Prejudice, fantastic, in February, which seems like a perfect Stevens show. Tell us a little bit about that. What are you doing differently for that? It's the John Jory version. It's a contemporary script and directed by Timo Akur. We'll have guest artists as well as featuring our students honoring the Jane Austen tradition, but with a spark and a flair. Are you setting it in modern day or will you have be going to the costume library again? It will be contemporary. Again? I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It will not be contemporary. It will be classic. Now, the one after this I'm the most interested in is called The Revolutionists it's by Lauren Gunderson. I think that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Tell us more about this play. She is one of the most often produced contemporary female playwrights. And this play looks at four women who have been revolutionaries, each of whom have a spark, a flair, and suffer for their outlook. Does that entice you? <laughs> I hope it does. And you said that you have a guest director for that too, from our local community. Yes, Elizabeth Palmieri. We're helping very happy to welcome her to Stevens. The director of Greenhouse Theatre. Yes. Project. Well, that'll be an exciting one. And then you end the season slightly differently than the programme says you are ending the season with nine to five. It just seemed the right thing to do. Nine <laughs> to five, the women are the focus. And Jennifer Hemphill, the new musical theatre professor, who you will see on stage in Mamma Mia!, is directing it. I've noticed over the past year of doing the interviews and doing the show that there's a lot of duplication between theatre companies. Last year there were three Mary Poppins, this year there'll be three Mamma Mia's, 9 to 5 was also at Arrow Rock this year with so many productions out there. Why is everybody doing the same thing and how can we avoid that? Is there a theatre collective that gets together and discusses what everyone in the region is doing so that we can have all these different shows rather than repeating them? What's the answer? Not to my knowledge, but I organized one in Washington, D.C. <laughs> while I was there. So perhaps that will be my calling. But, you know, I talked to Quinn at Arrow Rock and I said, what was your attendance at 9 to 5? He said 95%. Fabulous. It was two weeks in the summer. Our audience in May at Stevens will be slightly different. And he said... What a great production to do at Stevens, focusing on women. So there are choices. I don't think we've saturated the market by any means. It does seem that duplications happen just all the time, not only in musical theatre, but in, in regular, in drama, comedies. I see the same things coming up. It's like one person sees it and thinks, oh, that was, that was great, and now I want to do it at my theatre company. Uh, but I know how many plays are out there. I know how many great musicals are out there, and I feel as an audience member, give me something new all the time. <laughs> well, we'll be doing new works. I don't know if you realised that in the past we've done a new musical at Stevens. We did it as a stage reading called The Fourth Estate, which relates to the role uh, and responsibility of the press. And 
we did it, worked it through. It's now going to be produced at a professional theater in Washington. And it was done here first? Yes. Was it written by somebody local? No, it was someone I knew from D.C. And he said, hmm, you're at a women's school. I have this new musical. I know your work with social justice. What do you think? And we brought it here. So quickly before we close, let's talk about the Warehouse Theatre Company and the schedule that they have coming up. I've really enjoyed the plays that I've seen there. They feel very fresh, very dynamic. And again, I've gone back to see things twice because I've enjoyed them so much. So tell me what's coming up there this year. No, first I want to clone you. Come back <laughs> again and again, artists. First and foremost, I think anyone who supports the warehouse is supporting the next generation of directors and designers and producers. And when I say design, I mean scenic, costume, sound. And what we're doing with that ensemble is exceptional. There's not a performing arts student at Stevens who couldn't be fully embraced with experiences beyond their classes because of the warehouse. So you have four productions coming up. You have the Amish Project in October. You have Neighborhood 3 Requisition of Doom in November. You have Everyman in February and you close with Bull in a China Shop next April. Which one of those are you most excited about? How did I know you were going to ask me that? You didn't <laughs> prep me on that. Well, I'm going to take an odd one for you, every man, because I'm very concerned about nomenclature. And if you look at this early medieval piece, I would call it every woman if I had the choice. I don't. The play is entitled Every Man. And it's fascinating to me because the characters take on attributes that we emulate in terms of personalities. They don't have names. Their honor and glory and the challenge of Hon life. Honor and glory and the challenge of life. The closing words by my guest today, Dr. Gail Humphreys Marderosian, Dean of the School of Creative and Performing Arts at Stevens College. The box office for the upcoming season of shows at both the Stevens College Playhouse and Warehouse Theatres opens on August the 30th. To see a schedule of shows, go to stevens.edu and click on box office, which is at the very bottom of the homepage. You can also pick up a printed brochure of the upcoming season. Thank you so much, Gail. You are stunning. Thank you for having me <laughs> I here. I hope you'll come back again. Bring the, bring the guest directors with you. That would be fun. Thank you. Okay. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to the man with the golden voice, Marcus Jarrell Ruff. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My next guest has given over 500 performances in major concert halls across more than 20 countries. His voice has been described as acrobatic and full of soul, as having power, clarity and brilliant shades of colour. He is as at home with musical theatre and songs from the African-American tradition as he is with classical oratorio works. For several years, he was a member of the Grammy award-winning San Francisco-based Mayor Cappella Ensemble, Chanticleer, and 
and is currently pursuing a master's degree in choral conducting at Mizzou. He was on stage at the Ryansberger Theatre this summer singing the role of Cole House Walker Jr. in the fabulous production of Ragtime the Musical, a role which he imbued with so much grace and fire and intensity that the volume definitely went to 11. He was also the vocal coach for the Columbia Entertainment Company's fabulous production of Hairspray back in June and has just started as the new choral director for Columbia's Chordbusters a cappella group. Yet, were it not for an inspiring music teacher in high school, Marcus Jarrell Ruff might have been a lawyer or a broadcast journalist and the world would have been short an incredible bass baritone voice. It is a huge pleasure to welcome to the show the man with the golden voice, Marcus Jarrell Ruff. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> oh, wow. Well oh. deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I feel much. like I only just touched the sides, really, that there was so much more that I could have said. I, I you. know I, I shortened it. <laughs> wow. So there are so many talents that I wish I had, but one that I would really love is to be able to sing, not just in the shower or in the car, but a voice that could command a stage. Are singers like that born or can they be taught? I think the answer is uh, probably both. I think there are singers that have an innate talent. I think of people like Pavarotti, for example, uh, and, and Leontine Price. And then there are people who work really hard, and it took them a long time to get there, like Renee Fleming or people like Beyonce, even, who put in all that effort. So I think it's a combination of both. The 10,000-hour principle. That's exactly You've it. Got it. Have you put in your 10,000? You must have put in your 10,000 hours already. You know, I don't even like to count because I don't want to get complacent. <laughs> so, no, I haven't i'm somewhere around three and i've got a lot more to do so <laughs> now you grew up as an only child in a house where neither of your parents were particularly musical so what was your childhood experience of music and are there any moments that stand out for you i think the the moment that stands out for me the most is probably singing in the church choir i despised it uh <laughs> but my grandmother was the choir director and she made me sing and i had to sing this solo once and I was terrified. I, I I can still remember standing in front of the church and just shaking and holding the microphone right to my chest. It wasn't one of those experiences where it was like, oh, this is what I'm meant to do. It was very much so like, I can't wait for this to be over. But I'm grateful for that training because I think that that training is what has made me the musician that I am now. So, But it's amazing that that one experience didn't just turn you completely away and you thought, never, never doing this again, hate it. No, you know, because although my parents don't, well, my father wouldn't like for me to say this, but I'll say it. My father can sing and he can sing very well. My mother cannot. <laughs> uh, but there are musical people in my family. My aunt Tony, um, my grandmother, but all had beautiful voices. So music was bound to be a part of my life. I just didn't think it would become my whole life like it has become. Was music played at home? Absolutely. What, what did your parents play? Oh, God. So I'm a huge Motown kid, from, from obviously from, from their generation. And I can think of Earth, Wind & Fire. I can think of SWV Brownstone. I can think of, oh, God, Mary J. Blige. And just R&B was really big. My father is a huge R&B guy. And then my mother with gospel. She just loved gospel music and instilled that love of me. So the Clark sisters, Karen Clark Sheard, and the Mississippi Mass Choir, and John P. Key, and Kirk Franklin. I mean, these are just... They all group artists that have shaped my musicianship ultimately. Now it's interesting that your younger self considered a career in broadcast journalism and in law as both professions, you know, your vocal demeanor is really paramount. Did you have a sense of when you realized your voice was your future? 
I think that probably happened when I went to college uh, for a long time. I used I had this book, which we still have, uh, that has all of my report cards from grade school. And on the front of the year, the question would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so for every year, I was like a lawyer and the first black president of the United States of America. Well, someone beat me to that, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and then I think... I was involved in music in high school, and it was about my senior year. If I'm being really honest, it was when I got a scholarship to go to college. And I said, oh, I got that scholarship and got to campus and had no major because they didn't have broadcast journalism at the school that I accepted the scholarship from. And so my advisor said, have you thought about music? And I said, okay, well, let's try it. It's <laughs> totally random. I mean, I, I was going to go to the University of North Texas. I was accepted to that school. I was going to go study broadcast journalism. I wanted to sit behind a desk. Uh, I had given up the law aspirations, and I, I just wanted to be a news anchor. I, that's what I felt like. I knew that I was going to use my voice. I just didn't think that it was going to be for singing. I didn't think I had what it, it, it really took to get there, I guess. So, yeah. What, what did you think it took to get there? Well, you know, when you grow up listening to a lot of those like gospel artists, like I mentioned, like Karen Clark Sheard, for example, you hear all the vocal, as she said, acrobats in that one review. You hear all that, and I couldn't do any of that. I could not do any of that. All I could do was sing a melody, and I, could, and I knew there was integrity. Now, I can say that word now. I knew there was integrity in the melody, much like, and I'm not comparing myself to her, <laughs> much like Whitney Houston, who didn't have any of the frill. She just had, it just was a, it's a beautiful voice, the voice of the century, dare I say. And so I said, I know I can do that, but I couldn't do what I heard, which was, what was really popular, which was the runs and the riffs and the, I didn't have all that. So I said, oh, well, this singing is just not going to be for me. And I certainly didn't think that classical music was going to be the direction I was going to well, go. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Going back to high school markets, it's what, the early 2000s, the internet is exploding, people are becoming recording stars in their bedrooms. You've got a whole range of pop options out there. What turned you on to the classical genre? Probably... Uh, my high school choir director conducted a Jeremy Martineau conducted a, a women's ensemble and they sang an arrangement of Somewhere Over the Rainbow and just hearing that high soprano in what I now know as that head space just resonating I think it was a high G or something like that and I thought oh wow and then that somehow turned in like dovetailed to me getting turned on to like opera singers like Renee Fleming who was like really my first exposure to opera and I adore her and I've met her multiple times I love her uh Renee Fleming and then that then opened me up to Leontine Price and then I said oh wait a minute that's someone like me and so which is why representation matters and then that opened me up to Simon Estes and so it just it kept going but it started with that women's ensemble honestly and and knowing that there was money in the classical arts if you were good <laughs> you know the pop stars in their bedroom had to pay for you know the microphones and this but they were going to pay me to go sing classical music why not so tell me about your crown jewel influences ah uh, yes so I have this idea uh, I, I call them my crown jewels it's five of them it's the five artists who have shaped me now that being said I have definitely omitted people who have shaped me as a musician but these are like the five famous ones so I will start with Renee Fleming who has taught me legato and how to take a phrase and spin a phrase and and just wring it dry of every bit of emotion you can Leontine Price taught me how to be unapologetically black as a classical musician and to love the quality and color of my instrument Karen Clark Sheard 
taught me how to sing with the Holy Ghost. That gave me the the spirit and the the ability to sing what I to live what I sing about and vice versa. Whitney Houston, the voice of the century. I mean, she's just you can't you can't go wrong with Whitney Houston. And so I those those ones did I leave anybody out? Renee, Leontine, Karen, Whitney Houston. Beyonce. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I was gonna how could I oh my god, people are gonna hear this and think I'm not a real stan. I stand Beyonce. The last one is Beyonce. And Beyonce taught me how to be an entertainer. Believe it or not, I used to be very shy very shy and again back to that kid holding the microphone here i wasn't comfortable letting people see me and i watched her get on stage and i remember the year was 2007 or 8 and she said i have an alter ego when i get on the stage and it's sasha fierce and i said i need an alter ego and so i developed one and i named him belize and so when i would perform i was i marcus was nervous but belize was fearful and i got that name because i was in a production of angels in america in high uh, college excuse me and i played the character belize and he was so unapologetic and just so gregarious and i'm like that's who my alter ego will be is he still with you, or does Marcus Jarrell Ruff own his own stage presence now? He owns it now. I own it. <laughs> it is all me. It is all me. I'll call him Belize. I was in Berlin maybe three or four years ago, and there's a place there called Mauer Park where they do karaoke, and thousands of people. And my friends signed me up unbeknownst to me, and I go up. They call my name, and I like was trying not to go. They're like, no, go. They pushed me out there, and there was this moment of fear because people it's so many people there's some clips on like insta and in the uh, in the web and i just tapped into belize the whitney houston karaoke track started and i went so he's there somewhere but marcus Ruff owns it he's much. there when you need him when i need him yeah <laughs> so let's see you joined the grammy award-winning acapella group mm-hmm. chanticleer back in 2013 and that seems like a massive achievement there are only 12 people in the group how on earth did that come about I saw Shanna Claire in 2002 first when I was 16 and they blew me away and I turned to my high school choir director Jeremy Martineau and I said I'm going to be in that group and then they returned to Connecticut often while I was in college and I would see them every time I was there and so that was always the goal but to be completely honest every year since I graduated undergrad I always missed the deadline because I forgot I was distracted by other things that were going on in life, trying to figure out what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do here? And then I would think about Shanna Claire and I'd like, oh my God, okay, I got, I got to apply. And then I would look on the website and I had just missed the deadline. So I say, okay, I'm going to wait. And then when I finally would start remembering, so this is about 24, 25, 26, I just didn't think that I had what it took. I really didn't. I'm like, they don't want to hear the sound. Just that self-doubt, you know, just believing that, okay, what I'm doing here in Connecticut is fine. I don't need to do anything more. And then I started teaching middle school. And I said, (laughs) oh, no, no, this this won't work. And so November of 2012, I said, okay, I'm putting this tape together. And I put it together. And they loved it. And they called me out there. And there was a spot available. And I remember I auditioned and I auditioned well, but there were men, there were several good singers there. One that I swore was going to get the job over me. So much so that when I walked out of the, the room, I said to him, when I lose this job to you, which I know I will, it's okay because you're that good. And, but they asked me before I left, they said, 
why should we pick you? Something of that nature. And I said, because this is my opportunity to take. And if you don't take me, it won't be because I didn't give you my best. It will be because somebody else showed better than I did. But this is my moment. This is my opportunity. And the, the then director at the time told me, he said, when you said that, I knew you were it. Not only the talent, but you just the confidence. And this was your moment. And so do people, do they audition people all the time? Are they constantly changing the people in the group? They are. Well, I won't say they're constantly changing the people in the group, but I will say that they hold auditions every year, regardless if there's a spot open or not. So I, that was actually my second audition was when I got the job. My first audition, they had no openings, but they said, you can come and still sing for us for this weekend if you'd like. And I knew that that was that was crucial to me getting in because they needed to know who I was and I wanted to make a lasting impression and I did. So when the opening came up the next year, they called me and said, hey, this spot is available. What do you think? And I said, okay, now it's time. Was it that time and experience with Chanticleer that put Belize on the back burner? Probably. Although I can tell you right now, I had to use them in my first year for sure. I was so nervous, very nervous. And I did not know how to tie a bow tie. And in our first concert, just because I was so focused on the music and focused on, I mean, there was so much moving across the country and how to take Muni and I don't have my mom and my friends and my dad and no no one is around and I get to the venue everyone's getting dressed they're doing their thing I'm one of two new members my first year and it dawns on me that I don't know how to tie a bow tie and Eric Alatori, who was with Shannon Claire for 26 years is the institution in that ensemble that's the handlebar mustache guy with the low bass voice for those listening out there he comes over to me he sees me panicking I mean, my hands are shaking I'm sweating and he just stopped just stop this is tradition and he just stands there and he ties my tie and like a tear falls down my eye because i'm just so nervous but he was so paternal in that moment and so just fatherly and i knew everything was gonna be all right well let's have a musical interlude and listen to a clip from a recording you made with chanticleer this piece is called sit down servant plenty good room and it's from the group's live concert recording of chanticleer's 2013-14 seasons opening concert and the album was called she said he said Sit down, serve
And that was the track entitled Sit Down Servant, Plenty Good Room by the Grammy award-winning a cappella group Chanticleer, featuring the voice of my guest today, Marcus Jarrell Ruff. Now, your voice is classed as a bass baritone, Correct. which would put your range, what, around the second F below middle C up to the F sharp above middle C. Mm-hmm. But that was you singing all those counter tenor notes, that's correct. right? So yeah. what is your range? <laughs> you know, it, that's a really good question. I can tell you right now, I'm not a tenor. So if anybody's <laughs> listening to that and they're like, oh, he should sing. No, he can't. Um, I, what is the range? I, I've sung as low as B flats and Rachmaninoff's Vespers below low C. And I've sung all the way up to high F's above high C. It really is a matter of just... I guess what the spirit, what I feel like in the spirit or what the, the piece calls for. But I enjoy both voices. But there is, I want to be clear, there is no metal voice in there. When it comes to singing tenor, it's, I, it's, not, a, it's, not, a, it's not a pretty sight. So. so what is your vocal practice regime like? It's mm-hmm. a great question. Well, I warm up every day. That's the first thing because the voice is a, is a muscle and, and I want to protect this muscle and this instrument at all costs. So I warm up every day. And usually, to be specific, it starts with like a lot of sending scales. Uh, I like to move from my head voice all the way into my chest voice and really explore the entirety of the register, trying to be as seamless as possible. And then I'll probably start with some ascending exercises just to find my placement and form it in my bass baritone voice. I don't really warm up my top voice as a soprano much at all, unless I have to sing up there. And sometimes uh, uh, there's opportunities where a piece will start much like this one with me in my bass voice and then end with me going up. So having that flexibility, which is by the warm up to go through all is really important. And what is a head voice? So a head voice, we characterize that as where our our resonance is. Uh, So chest voice, we resonate here in our chest. And then in our head voice, we're resonating in the head. So that's the difference between e and e. it's all so some people call head voice falsetto as well but we've kind of come away from that because to be politically correct because the implication that someone's voice is false is you know not really appropriate because there are many countertenors out there far better than me just so we're clear Cortez Mitchell Anthony Ross uh, Roth Constanza for example Thomas Allen who are killing it singing exclusively in their top voices and uh, actively booked consistently do you ever listen to the Eurovision Song Contest? When those clips pop up on Facebook, yes. Do you remember there was a, ca- a Romanian countertenor a few years ago that had an incredible song? And he, he had this big cape on and he was on a platform on the stage that rose up. And as his voice went higher and higher, the platform rose. It was phenomenal. I'm going to send you the clip. Please do. That, that was you got to love the theatrics. So, and what about your voice care? Do you drink certain fluids or do you avoid talking before a concert? How well, protective are you? The first thing is, and I say this to, to singers all the time, when you warm up, you must warm down. So when my day is done, particularly when I was in ragtime, for example, that role was my first foray into a baritone repertoire that sat pretty high. Uh, I was singing between middle C and high G's every night for eight shows or nine shows, excuse me. So the warm up was crucial, but the warm down was even more important so that the chords could have a chance to just come back down. All that. Sometimes the larynx likes to rise when we have a lot of high C. So it just kind of nestles everything back into its positioning and so that I could go to sleep and recuperate. Uh, Another part of my practice
practice is that I try to avoid loud bars if I have to sing. So there's like Marcus when he's on and then there's Marcus when he's off. Marcus when he's off, when I, I was in Israel for vacation this year, you know, he has, he can do whatever he wants, eat and drink whatever he wants and, and have a really good time. Marcus when he's on is, is much more disciplined. Being careful, uh, I have bad acid reflux, for example. So just being careful of those triggers and alcohol, of course. And then just maintaining the care of the voice. And I check in with myself every day. My voice teacher, Christine Seitz at Mizzou, has given me such a solid technique in addition to the teachers who've come before. So when I feel something might be off, I might say to myself, you know, maybe we'll be on vocal rest today. You know, vocal naps are really great. 15 minutes. 15 minutes. If you can find a period of 15 and just not talk, just give your cords time to just rest. That's all. So that, that it's a combination of those things. Well, let's talk about musical theatre. You have an incredible resume of voice work, but I, I don't see that you trained as an actor. Yet, as Cole Housewalker Jr., your presence had me pinned in my seat. Thank you. You emanated such passion and such anger Thank you. during those scenes that I just felt like I... I couldn't move. Mm. It was overwhelming and intense. Thank you. It was incredible performance. Thank you. Where did you learn to act like that? It's not natural, I will say that. My minor in college, uh, I'm undergrad, was theater performance. So that was, I think, 24 credits in acting one, two, three, and four, maybe stage movement. So that, that gave me a basis for this whole thing. And then I've taken classes, you know, a workshop in New York, you know, workshop in San Francisco here and there just to, you know, keep my acting chops up. With Cole House, I really wanted to take my time approaching him because it is such a large arc that he has to traverse from the beginning of the show until the end of the show. And the director, Dr. Joy Powell, will tell you I was very, very slow and calculated in the beginning, maybe even too slow, <laughs> because they wanted they wanted me to, you know, go here sooner than I was prepared, quite frankly. And I felt as an actor that I had to really take my time so that the voice and the character would go together. I didn't want one to go without the other because a fear that if the character went and the voice wasn't ready, then I might do something detrimental to my instrument. Or if the voice went and the character wasn't there, people would say, oh, well, we'd love to listen to it, but acting-wise, it's not there. So I just took my time step-by-step step, and literally built it bit-by-bit bit and said, why is he angry? Why is he happy? What happens in between that? And how do we show that intensity vocally and consistently for nine shows? As the show is over, I'm not giving it a, a, anything away, but by the end, when you were about to leave the building mm -hmm. and get shot, I wanted to leap out of my chair and say, don't go, <laughs> There's a line where he says, are they going to kill me? And we, Nolly yeah, Moore and I, uh, who's a fantastic actor uh, and singer and educator. Hi, Nolly, uh, if you're listening. Uh, we worked that scene. We worked that scene over and over because the, the nuance had to be right. And he had this revelatory moment, which he actually wrote about on his Facebook, where we, we had tried one way and it was like, okay, yeah. But it, it just didn't ring as authentic to either of us. And then it clicked in rehearsal and we just wrote it all the way out. Yeah, it definitely clicked for the audience too. So what is your future? What do you, what, what's your dream next 10 years? That's a great question. Uh, I want to EGOT. I just want to put that into the universe. I want the universe to hear me and anybody else who might have any influence over that. I want to earn an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and a Tony. That is what I want. And so every decision that I make is in the direction of that EGOT. Which one do you think you're going to get first? Tony. <laughs> 
Tony, I think. So that would basically mean you would need to go to New York. That would mean that. Or some coastal city. I feel at what sure that one day I will see your name in lights on a that. major metropolitan operatic stage or a theatrical stage, and I'll say, I met him once. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I hope so. What would be your first, what's your Tony winning role? Tom Collins in Rent. Okay. Tom Collins in Rent, for it's sure. It's out there, universe. Yes, it Marcus is. Marcus Jarrell Ruff wants yes, Tom is. Collins in Rent. And he was, and I'll tell you this, and I, I can say this, I was a finalist for that role for the national tour in 2016 while I was in Chanticleer. It was really hectic to do it, and it, they went another direction, and that's quite all right. I'm happy for that actor, but my moment is coming. Yeah, yeah. it definitely is. <laughs> my guest today has been the singer Marcus Jarrell Ruff. His next performance will be at First Baptist Church on Friday the 27th of September in an Odyssey Chamber music series program called The Evolution of the African American Spiritual, which he is co-curating with Dr. Maya Gibson and he's singing in with jazz and gospel artist Jolie Rock with piano accompaniment by Dr. Brandon A. Boyd. And you can find tickets for that show at odysseymissouri.org or you can also buy them on the door for $20. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. At the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock this weekend, it's your last chance to see Fully Committed, a hilarious show incredibly acted by just one man who plays 40 different characters as he answers the reservation line phones at Manhattan's number one restaurant. There are two shows today and tomorrow at 2pm and 8pm, plus a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $40 and it is well worth the money. It is also opening weekend at Maplewood Barn for the Neil Simon Fast Rumours which has a stellar cast of Columbia players. You can catch it tonight, tomorrow and Sunday at 8pm. Tickets are $10 and the show will run for two more weekends. In Boonville, the 44th annual Missouri River Festival of the Arts continues tonight and tomorrow. Tonight's concert at the historic Thespian Hall is called From Broadway to Boonville and tomorrow night you can hear Symphonic Splendor featuring a full orchestra performing Beethoven's Symphony No. 3 and Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1. Both concerts start at 7.30 and tickets are $30. And while you're there, you can also check out the work of this year's featured artist, Columbia's own Mike Seat. The School of the Missouri Contemporary Ballet has its Danceability Fundraiser this evening at Logboat Brewing from 4.30 till 7.30 with a performance of dance at 5.45. At First Baptist Church, the Odyssey Chamber Music Series kicks off its new season with a concert by the Jacques Thibault String Trio at 7pm. The German trio will be joined by pianist Tao Lin in a concert of quartet works by Mozart and Brahms. Tickets on the door and they cost $20. And at Rose Musical tonight, you can see Porter Union on stage at 8.30 for an $8 ticket. Tomorrow is Skylark Bookshop's first birthday party, which they'll be celebrating from 10 a.m. onwards with prizes and giveaways. At Rose Musical, this year's Pride Fest gets underway at 1 p.m., celebrating mid-Missouri's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, pansexual, asexual, and ally community. This year's headline performer is Monica Beverly Hills from season five of RuPaul's Drag Race. Saturday afternoon from four till five, the Columbia Art League will hold the second of its town hall meetings to find out what the community would like to see and experience at the Columbia Art League. 
Monday and Tuesday evening, Talking Horse Productions will hold auditions at Columbia Mall for their next play, the fast-paced satire Vera Stark. Auditions run from 7 till 9, both nights. On Tuesday evening, the School of the Missouri Contemporary Ballet will be hosting youth auditions for the December performance of Moscow Ballet's Great Russian Nutcracker. The audition is open to dancers aged 6 to 18. Registration for auditions opens at 5 and there is no cost to audition. And at Ragtag Cinema next Tuesday, you can join the renowned violin and conductor of the Mexico City Philharmonic, Scott Yu, to watch an episode of Now Hear This, a PBS miniseries presented by Great Performances. Tuesday's episode is called The Riddle of Bach and features University of Missouri's flautist, Alice Dade, and that showing starts at 6.30. Next Wednesday, Narco and Medicine for the People bring their blend of rock, hip-hop and alt-folk music to the stage at Rose Park for a Summerfest concert event. The show starts at 7 and tickets are $25. The annual Celebration of the Arts Party and Fundraiser organized by Columbia's Office of Cultural Affairs takes place at the Atrium on 10th next Thursday from 6 till 9. They will be unveiling the 2019 Celebration of the Arts poster created this year by Kate Gray. Plus, there will be a special Arts Hero Award presented to former KOPN radio presenter and art teacher to generations of Colombians, Dr. Anne Mayer. You can get tickets for that event at como.gov forward slash arts. And finally, Next Thursday is the first day for artists to submit their artwork on the theme of travellers to Orr Street Studios for this year's Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Art Show. Submissions will be accepted at Orr Street from 2 till 5. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.